Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books and Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies, and we chat with its author. A sustained and compelling critique of the doubt-belief binary in the anthropology of religion and Islam, Nicholas Evans's Far From the Caliph's Gaze, being Ahmadi Muslim in the holy city of Qadian, presents a riveting ethnography of a community's strivings to materially embody and establish the certainty of its religious identity. An organizational ethnography of the Ahmadi community in its founding city of Qadian in Punjab, India, this book charts the multiple ways in which the Ahmadiyya cultivate their fidelity to the caliphs that combine bureaucratic operations, polemical encounters with Muslims and non-Muslims, and the expression and dissemination of piety through technology like satellite television. In our conversation, we engage a range of themes that animate the book, including the Ahmadi Caliph relationship as the antidote to secular politics, enchanting bureaucracy and utopian counterpublics, heroic polemicism, the productive outcomes of ritual failures, and global outreach through technology as a mode of theological success. This lyrically written book brings together just the perfect dose and mixture of intellectual history, ethnographic brilliance, and theoretical nuance and sophistication. While centered on South Asia, its conceptual intervention in the anthropology of religion will and should spark conversations among scholars of Islam, religion, and anthropology more generally. It will also make a delightful text to teach in various undergraduate and graduate courses. Here now is my conversation with Professor Nicholas Evans. Hello, Nick. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Uh, well, uh, thank you so much, Nick. As I was saying before, I pressed record here. Uh, you know, such a splendid book and uh, so much to learn for scholars from different fields, uh, including anthropology, Islamic studies, South Asia. Uh, it really is a spellbinding uh, text. We have a tradition on the New Books Network, Nick, that our first question is always biographical. Uh, I was wondering if uh, you could share with our listeners a bit uh, how you became a scholar and anthropologist of uh, Islam and Muslim societies, uh, and then what got you to write this particular book? And then we'll go more into the details of the book itself after that. Uh, absolutely, yeah, um, and thank you for the for the kind words. Um, I guess, um, I mean, I was first and foremost an anthropologist. I studied anthropology as, as an undergraduate student. Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the kinds of questions that it enabled me to ask about the world. Uh, I was also very interested in uh, questions of religion, uh, ethnography about religion. And um, I, you know, partly kind of, I guess, for a, a lot of the subjects at that time, signed up for a PhD program. Um, at, at the time, we were doing a completely different project, which, uh, which probably wouldn't have been very good had I continued on it. And, uh, and really my introduction to uh, the topic of this book was meeting people uh, 
from Kardian while I was in India, uh, meeting a few members of the community. Um, so, which really, and so this is the, the small town where the Ahmadiyya movement was was founded, uh, which is where I ended up doing my ethnographic field work for this book. Um, and I think that you know a lot of the um, a lot of the works that have been written about the Ahmadiyya community often begin from the kind of diaspora element. You know, uh, there have been quite a few. Uh, Quite a few people who've written books about this community, uh, often the second books when they're working, uh, you know, doing field work in their own local cities in Euro-America. Um, whereas in, in my case, it really came from from, from finding about, out about this town called Kardian before I'd even heard about the Ahmadiyya movement um, and discovering what a kind of fascinating place it was. You know, it has a, it has a really unique uh, post-partition history, really in the whole of, of Indian Punjab. Um, and you know, finding out about this place had been a uh, uh, an origin point for nineteenth-century prophecy, uh, somewhat forgotten in the late twentieth century, but still of huge spiritual importance for believers around the world. Uh, and really thinking that I kind of wanted to find out, find out more about what was happening there. So my my study of the Ahmadiyya community really actually began from Kardian and thinking about Kardian as a place, um, and and you know, as an interesting. Uh, site for asking key questions within the Terrific. So before we get into the specific uh, themes of the book, let's begin with the broader conceptual intervention that you make, and you state it, uh, you know, from the very beginnings of uh, uh, the book, um, uh, which, uh, if I read it correctly, it's primarily a critique of this doubt-belief binary that, you know, somehow you can think of doubt and belief as these oppositional uh, sort of uh, categories and uh, that basically becoming the frame through which we understand religious communities and subjects and so on. And you offer a competing theoretical framework to 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 try to grapple with uh, a community like the Ahmadis in Kadian and perhaps even beyond. Could you speak a bit about this larger intervention that you make? Uh, yeah, so I, I guess it, it began with um, a frustration which I felt when reading quite a lot of contemporary uh, work within the anthropology of religion, but also within the study of religion more broadly, um, where I felt that there was a kind of very normative framework developing, uh, often unspoken, um, just assumed within within uh, work, that um, basically all religious belief comes with, you know, a kind of natural human tendency towards particular kinds of doubt, particular kinds of uncertainty. Um, and I think it's true, you know, humans humans do tend towards uncertainty in certain key ways. But what I kept finding was, I think that while uh, while anthropologists and other scholars of religion were were extremely effective at interrogating what we mean by conviction, what we mean by uncertainty, they often left the opposite uh, as a kind of you know uh, as a kind of blank uh, slate that didn't really sort of seem to warrant much interrogation, and which was often just kind of filled by a. Uh, an assumption about what the opposite of belief should be. Um, and coming at this from having done fieldwork in Kardian, I felt that this wasn't really a sufficient framework to, to describe uh, the kind of religious life that I'd, I'd seen there, where people are quite certain they do have you know, a fairly high degree of conviction, I would say, about the doctrinal aspects of their religion. Um, I really didn't meet people in Kardian who were sort of overly concerned with cultivating doubts towards religious religious beliefs and other kind of virtue. Um, 
or who sort of shared with me, you know, pressing worries about whether or not their their religious doctrine was true. Uh, they lived within a quite hierarchical religious system in which they understood themselves to have been blessed by a divine guide who could give them the answer to religious problems. Um, what I did, however, see were people who nonetheless had a, what I call a troubled relationship to truth, in that they did worry about other aspects, about other forms of uncertainty in their relationship to religious truth. Uh, they were concerned about how do I properly witness religious truth? Uh, and fundamentally, they were concerned about how do I, uh, how do I uh, demonstrate it? How do I evidence it and prove it in the world? Because obviously, this is a community which has, uh, you know, been subject to uh, decades of, of accusations that they are not Muslim, um, that what they are saying is false, that they are, you know, following a false path, etc. And so there was a real question about, right, well, we think we've got you know, arguments that work. We think we've got doctrine that works. We're not really worried about whether or not that doctrine was true or not. But how on earth do we convince others of that? How on earth do we make that presence in the world? And so kind of what I argued is, you know, if we want to begin to to think a little bit about this, we have to begin to move away from an understanding of, of uh, a particular modality of doubt as being a, a sort of a, a, a default setting for all religious belief, and instead begin to think what doubt in its kind of textured formulations in its local manifestations might look like, and begin to attend to, well, how is it that people relate to truth? And what is it of that relationship that might bother them, that might concern them? Wonderful. So, you know, one of the major themes of the book, and especially in the beginning sections of the book, is this relationship of uh, the Ahmadi subjects to the caliph, or the institution of uh, the, the caliphate. Uh, in the specificity of this community. Uh, you know, the book is called Far From the Caliph's Gaze. In the first chapter, you really give um, sort of an intellectual history and also your own ethnographic experiences when you found out how important this uh, sort of uh, relationship was. So could you speak a bit about how did this uh, sort of Ahmadi Caliph uh, relationship or the, this institution develop? And you also make a, an argument in the second half of this chapter where you sort of talk about very convincingly how this uh, uh, sort of institutionalized uh, setup of the individual's relationship to the caliph is then imagined as uh, sort of a utopic antidote to secular politics or to worldly secular politics. Uh, could you speak a bit about that also? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, um, I, I guess I, before we kind of get into how did the how did this institute develop, um, I should just say that you know this book is is first and foremost an an organizational ethnography. It is an ethnography of a religious organization, of a transnational organization which is spread out across the world, which is nowadays structured through an extensive administrative system with office holders, which is highly hierarchical, with ha which has chains of command, which cross continents. Um, and um, which, you know, has a particularly kind of historically situated local manifestation in this town of Kadian. Um, so nowadays we have this situation in which the leader of the Ahmadiyya community, the, 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 the Caliph, lives in London. 
Um, and we have a kind of huge bureaucratic structure which connects him to uh, the large number of local functionaries in Kardian who are carrying out the work of actually administering this religious system within the whole of India. Um, most of the people I was speaking to, most of my interlocutors were office workers within this system. They were administrators, they were bureaucrats. Um, they were responsible for running running the Ahmadiyya system. Um, so, you know, part of what I was trying to think about here was the links between theology and social structure. And how is it that we end up now with this, with a situation in which uh, effectively uh, theological proof and the shape of the society, the hierarchy and the organization in which people live are considered to be intertwined and connected. Um, and so that necessitated, necess necessitated looking at kind of, okay, what's the history of the caliphate? How did the caliphate develop? Um, and we find that it's actually kind of very much underdeveloped within the writing of the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, uh, Mizal Ghulam Ahmad, who, was, who, who lived in 19th century Punjab. Um, it was only after his death when this really became sort of uh, was elaborated, um, and arguments over the kind of position that the, the the Khalifa should have within the community actually led to its first major split um, between what were known as the Lahore and Kardian branches of the community. Uh, the Kardian branch obviously is the one I work on and is by far the kind of largest uh, demographic contingent of, of Ahmadi Muslims in the world now. Most most Ahmadi Muslims in the world today belong to this organization. And we really should think about it as an organization rather than a faction of the movement. Um, and uh, kind of what I show in this chapter, yeah, is that it's basically slowly uh, the the son of Mithra Qulam Ahmad, who became the second, the second Khalifa, um, basically slowly uh, began to emphasize the theological importance of uh, Khilafat, Caliphate. Um, he slowly began to emphasize this as a blessing um, and its importance kind of really has increased ever since uh, ever since the early 20th century. Um, until today, uh, when the defining feature of the community for many of the people I was working with in Kardian um, is seen to be their uh, unity and discipline beneath a singular leader. And it is this kind of social form, this, this hierarchy, which is embedded in everyday relations in Kardian, which is seen to be the shining proof, the shining evidence, the, the, the kind of like final empirical proof, if you like, that they are the one true Muslim sect, um, which, is, which is currently in existence. Um, so just on to, on to your second question there. Um, I hope that answered your first question, Shirley. Um, just on to your second question there. Um, the, fundamentally, the, the the movement presents itself as a non-political movement. So they have this divinely elected leader, the caliph, um, who they argue is not, in a strict sense, a political leader. Um, he's not quite secular either, however. Um, and what I kind of show in this book is that his relationship to worldly politics is understood to be one which is both separate from worldly politics, but also encompassing of worldly politics. Um, we see this wonderfully coming up in the aesthetics of the community. So he's often shown sort of talking to world leaders, talking to politicians in various local countries when he does his world tours. And often these interviews are edited in such a way that we will see him speaking and we will see politicians listening. And there is a kind of very one-directional 
movement of ideas, um, of advice, of guidance, as he kind of, you know, encompasses worldly power within himself while leaving it to have its own domain. Um, and one of the things I argue within the book is that this is kind of where we see the the, the Sufi inheritance quite quite clearly uh, within the present day community, because this is very much how you know certain kind of uh, Sufi sheikhs would have interacted with with medieval rulers. Now, for the next question, Nick, I want to focus on a couple of categories that you introduce in the second chapter of the book that I think are very central to your concerns and might be really useful for the listeners to get a handle on uh, these two categories and then uh, connecting that to your argument, which is one, this idea of enchanted bureaucracy, which I found a very fascinating category. And then the other one, which uh, then comes up again in the latter half of the book, is this idea of the counterfeit proof of Muslimness. Um, Could you talk about uh, these two categories and how they might relate to each other? Sure thing, sure thing. So the... uh, um the enchanted bureaucracy i mean obviously that's a that's a you know small play on Weberian ideas about what bureaucracies are uh, and what they do um and one of the things that you know i'm looking at is how so we've got this situation where you've got this this town of kadian which is the the original home of the Ahmadiyya community uh it is the place where this divine leader the the khalifa who is seen to kind of uh who's whose guidance is seen to benefit the community globally. It's the place in which uh, the, this institution of caliphate was established. But then with partition in, in 1947, the, the Khalifa left Qadian, um, uh, abandoned it in some sense for, uh, in order to make a, uh, make a claim to be part of the new Islamic nation of Pakistan. And this led to decades in which Qadian uh, was effectively marginalized within the global community uh, in which it was uh, bereft of its Khalifa's guidance, particularly in those those early decades after the partition, it was extremely difficult for the community to uh, to receive direct guidance of the kind they would like from him. Um, and only recently, in the last couple of decades, have you know uh, caliphs begun to very infrequently, I should say, visit Qadian. So when I talk about the, the the enchanting bureaucracy, as I said, play on Weber, it's a way of kind of trying to describe the ways in which through very mundane bureaucratic practices, such as signing letters, sending them around offices in London, uh, and then faxing them to London, uh, sorry, sending them around offices in Qadian and then, and then faxing them to London for approval by the by the Khalifa. Through these very kind of mundane bureaucratic practices, the, the, the Khalifa's guidance uh, and his presence in everyday life in Qadian is base is kind of implanted within Qadian. It's a way of bringing his his spiritual presence and his guidance into the town. Um, and I look at and I look at the way in, in effect these kind of quite routine bureaucratic practices effectively dignify the work that is done there as being something which is, in some sense, seen to be directly divinely guided. Um, this is. You know, within the larger structure of the book, this is part of a question of, right, how is it that these people who, you know, everyone says you're not Muslims, as I said, so the central problem they have is, well, how do we prove we're Muslim? How do we kind of make our Muslimness manifest in the world? How do we, how do we empirically demonstrate this Muslimness in the world? And what I argue is that the, the system itself, this bureaucratic system, is one of these kind of ways in which this gets manifested precisely through kind of creating these very material traces that these very material links that people have to their divine leader the khalifa 
Um, this is kind of where this idea of, of counterfeit proof comes in, um, which is really a, you know, a, a, a rejoinder to all that uh, material on belief and doubt, which I, I was telling you about before, um, which is this question of, well, if we, if we no longer think about doubt being kind of the inverse of belief, if we no longer think about doubt as being, you know, belief's dark shadow, then, then how do we begin to think about, about religious uncertainty? And uh, really what I'm, what I'm talking about here is kind of saying, well, um, one particular kind of concern, one particular source of, of religious uncertainty within this place, well, you know, uh, when people relate to truth, is this question of, well, how do you know that your, how do you know that your evidence is in effect uh, kind of sincere? How do you know that it's truthful evidence? How, you know, how does evidence of something which is ultimately unprovable, Muslimness, how does it always kind of end up uh, undermining itself in its own production? And uh, you know, I look at how this happens within these. The, these kind of minute bureaucratic processes that go on every day. So one other aspect that uh, you highlight, which is very central to this whole process of trying to materially manifest Muslimness and convince of one's Muslimness, is engaging other uh, Muslim groups in India and elsewhere, uh, and non-Muslim groups also. And you again, a very interesting category that you introduce. This category is really useful for the reader actually to follow the argument also. Uh, uh, which you call heroic polemicism, that has many uh, Ahmadis in body. Uh, tell us a bit about that narrative uh, uh, about that showroom in, uh, I think it was Batala, right? Uh, um, uh, and uh, tell us a bit about that narrative and how that might connect to this category of heroic polemicism uh, and how this, again, is another way in which you, again, uh, critique this doubt-belief binary to try to show how uh, polemics also are an important way of materially manifesting uh, Muslimness to the wider uh, community. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, I should probably start here by saying that the that this is um, something which is very evident when you look at Ahmadiyat within its South Asian context. Um, there is a certain amount of code switching that happens, uh, particularly as, you know, th this is a movement which is increasingly moving to other parts of the world, which is increasingly shifting its centers of authority to Euro-America, uh, but also, you know, uh, parts of West Africa, for example. Um, and often, you know, um, there, there is a huge emphasis um, in those countries, but also, say, in India, when trying to engage an English-speaking elite um, in a particular kind of performative presentation of Ahmadiyat as the peaceful, um, non-political solution to Islam as a kind of broken faith. Um, the And part of you know, what constitutes that that broken Islam that they are basically presenting themselves as the solution to um, is this idea of, a, of an Islam which is kind of mired in sectarian disputation in, in, in Mullahism, you know, sort of ignorant uh, village mullahs. And part of what I'm trying to do in this chapter is really kind of say, well, um, you know, obviously there there's an important uh, way in which both Ahmadis and their opponents basically say this 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 movement this jamaat this community is exceptional it's not like other people but actually they are also part of a broader kind of um culture of sectarian disputation we might call it um you know in which there are sort of particular kind of polemical debates between various schools of thought within south asian islam 
Um, and this is when, you know, when you begin to look at it in its South Asian context, you begin to see forms of debate, which are very, very much unlike the, the glossy, quite aesthetic image of the Ahmadiyya community that usually emerges in English language publications. This debate is quite uh, it is quite fierce. Um, it, it can be very joyful um, in its aim to shut the mouths of opponents, to completely defeat opponents such that they cannot respond to what you say through this sort of deployment of, of blindingly powerful theological truths. Um, and kind of what I say is, well, you know, there, there's various ways of interpreting this and understanding what it is. And there is a, there's a kind of broader um, set of uh, debates about sort of Muslim intellectual life in in South Asia. Um, I mean, I know some, this is something that you, you have talked about, Sher Ali. Um, you know, of kind of denigrating uh, madrasa education, etc., and looking at how it produces you know Muslims who aren't capable of doubting properly. And I sort of part of what I'm saying here is, well, if we look at this 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 culture of polemics. Uh, simply through a lens of belief and doubt, then yeah, perhaps we do see people who kind of seem on the surface to be excessively certain, to be excessively convinced and concerned only about, you know, defending and shoring up a sectarian position. And part of what I try and say here is, well, we actually have to begin to understand this not solely at the level of kind of its intellectual uh, engagement, not solely at the level of kind of the ideas being promoted, but also as a way of cultivating a particular ethical uh, character and part of what's going on here is that you know the the, the Ahmadis I, I I I'm describing in Kadian are followers of a 19th century of a 19th century promised Messiah who himself was hugely engaged in polemics. I mean, his life was basically his 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 work as a as a prophet was to engage opponents in polemics in which he proved the supremacy of Islam. You know, he wrote, he writes books in which he talks about delivering uh, beautiful proofs in favor of Islam. And so kind of what I argue is that, that for, you know, Ahmadis, in, Ahmadis to, 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 to craft themselves in this ethical image as what I call heroic polemicists is a way of kind of, you know, channeling the ethical ex- exemplar, the ethical example that was given by, by the founder of their movement. Um, and what I say is that when, you know, when we begin to kind of look at it in, in these terms, then we see, you know, we begin to see why uh, the concern here might not be about doubt. It might not be about, are we doubting properly? Um, and maybe we shouldn't be asking that question, are these people doubting properly? Because the concern in this ethical practice becomes, well, you know, are we good at delivering arguments? Um, are we effective moral polemicists? Um, are we able to do this? in a way that lives up to the example given by our prophet? And are we demonstrating the right kind of relationship to him? Are we demonstrating the right kind of relationship of love to him when we're doing it? Um, so I guess that's kind of why I think that, that you know, a, a singular focus on, on doubt might kind of lose some of the, some of the, um, might, it might make us blind to some of what makes these practices uh, ethically meaningful to the people who are engaging in them. Wonderful. Um, so do you want to quickly, uh, very briefly, since you mentioned it, uh, talk about the narrative with which you begin this chapter? or? Oh, sorry. Yeah. So, no, it's just I, I, one of the, th- I mean, I give an example there of, uh, you know, a normal lay Ahmadi. So he's not a cleric. He's not someone who's who's being employed as a missionary, as they call them, of the movement, um, who, you know, encounters uh, encounters some other Muslims and basically uh, 
deploys these kind of theological proofs such that these other Muslims are rendered kind of completely silent. And I talk about this as, you know, one of the first times that I actually see this this particular kind of performance of heroic polemicism happening. Um, Partly because although this is an ethical ideal, and most of the people I was talking to were they were they were missionaries of the movement. They had been trained for seven years in the Jamia Ahmadiyya, the theological college of the movement. Uh, most of them didn't actually frequently engage in debate with outsiders um, because it is a practice which is actually highly controlled by the uh, hierarchy of the movement. Uh, usually, for a missionary to engage in a particular fixed public debate, they would need to seek. Um, permission, possibly all the way from the um, Khalifa himself, Um, and usually kind of, you know, forms of debate in which would open the Jamaat to defeat through trickery um, are discouraged. And this is the kind of, this is the, there is this real concern uh, among the clerics of the movement that, you know, they know that, that, as they say it, they, they know that their arguments can't be defeated through honest intellectual debate. Um, there's this kind of idea that we've got the best arguments, uh, which means that our opponents are going to resort to trickery in order to make it look as if we have lost. And there is a kind of, you know, there's a real concern about not opening up the Jamaat to that kind of uh, trickery, to that kind of, you know, bad publicity that it could result from uh, appearing falsely to have lost in debate. Now, another very fascinating, um, uh, I guess, mechanism or uh, uh, method of... Uh, engaging in these debates of disagreements and polemics is this uh, um, sort of Islamic uh, uh, notion of the uh, mutual invocation of a curse or uh, the Mubahala tradition or invoking the full Mubahala tradition that you also talk about how it has been invoked at multiple moments in uh, uh, Ahmadi history, uh, some more contemporary moments, some earlier. Uh, And you make a very interesting point about the use of Mubahala as this uh, polemical technique in that Sometimes the ritual is uh, uh, is allowed to fail, and the, and the and the failure of the ritual also has a certain kind of a productive uh, um, uh, uh, sort of uh, capacity uh, embedded in it. Uh, could you talk a bit about this Mubahala tradition in the Ahmadi history and uh, practice, and, and 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 how does the failure of the ritual end up being productive? Sure, sure thing. Um, so the yeah, so the Mubahala is 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 basically a. Um, I mean, it's, it's an event which is, is, is mentioned in the Quran. There's, there's a, a verse about it, um, which is, I mean, as you say, it, it's a kind of a, a mutual invocation of, of, of curses. Two groups, they, they basically ask um, God to, to curse the wrong party. Um, the, the actual, what's written about in the Quran is incredibly brief, um, incredibly swift. Uh, it's very hard to kind of actually establish how this kind of ritual might be performed in a successful manner. Um, Unfortunately, I mean, I I don't know of anyone who's actually written a history of of the Mubahala. I'd I'd love to see whether these things were performed in, in, you know, medieval Islam, for example. I don't know if they were. I can't find many references to them being so. But, uh, you know, I'd love to hear if people know of that happening. Um, From what I can tell... uh, in the world today, the, the Mubahala is occasionally invoked as a as a, a ritual possibility in uh, sectarian debates within Indonesia. Um, and within its South Asian context, uh, it, it really seems to have been revived and kind of, um, you know, uh, 
brought back as a as as a as a living form of ritual action by the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, Mizal Khulam Ahmed. Um, he cha- he challenged a number of opponents to these 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 forms of this this um, this this kind of uh, what we might say ordeal for um, for discerning truthhood, and um, it was then uh, I mean the, the kind of you know the chapter this chapter is quite a historical chapter it looks at the history of these these rituals within the community it was then revived in the 1980s by the fourth Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, Mirza Tahir Ahmad, who in 1988 basically issued a worldwide challenge to opponents to engage in him, with him in this, this ritual of the Mubahala. Um, very shortly after he did so, uh, General Zia, then the, the president of Pakistan, uh, his, his plane mysteriously crashed, killing him. Uh, this is taken by Ahmadis to be a clear sign from God that uh, effectively Zia was found wanting by God uh, due to the Mu'ahala challenge and and killed. Um, the timing is, you know, the timing is quite quite good in that respect. Um, but what I really look at in this chapter is how you know, uh, apart from that one big example of of someone of a very famous opponent of the Jamaat, uh, obviously General Zia was was involved in persecuting. I mean, had put in place a number of laws four years previously, which had basically effectively you know uh, criminalized certain aspects of Ahmadi belief within Pakistan. Um, uh, but apart from that one you know, uh, that one example, uh, a lot of other kind of smaller, um, opponents of the Jamaat did attempt to accept this challenge to partake in a Mubahala to, if you like, mutually curse, to mutually invoke God's curse upon one another and wait for divine judgment to see who was the truthful and who was the false. And, what I then chart in this chapter are the kind of very complex processes through which the various sides effectively tried to define the conditions under which a mubahala could take place. Um, it's one of those things that gets very technical. So if you know, it's one of these. I, I, I wouldn't try and sort of describe all of the conditions here. But the the the, the long and the short of it is that. Um, uh, effectively, in most of these cases, the 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 mubahal has never happened, and part of the reason why the mubahal has never happened is because nobody could agree upon the conditions, and the Ahmadis in particular would effectively find their opponents incapable of meeting what they saw as the basic ritual conditions needed to even do the ritual, to even enable the ritual to actually produce divine truth. And what we see in this uh, is that. This becomes for the Ahmadiyya Jamaat uh, a means through which, in, in, in showing their unique uh, ability to meet the base ritual conditions for this form of, of divine arbitration, effectively, they are they are effectively demonstrating a way in which their Muslimness can be witnessed and seen in the relations that they have to one another and in the relations that they have to their Khalifa. Um, so it's really kind of, you know, as other opponents fail that, um, it's shown how their kind of social relations are incapable of doing this kind of work of proving Muslimness. And it's shown how, conversely, the Ahmadi social relations are, in fact, kind of concrete, materialized embodiments of uh, true Islam. In the final uh, chapter of your book, you focus on a very important, um, I guess, uh, media uh, medium within uh, the Ahmadiyya community, the 
the MTA, and I'll have you perhaps describe a bit for listeners who might not be familiar what the MTA is, uh, and maybe a bit of its history. But then you make a very interesting point that you know the kind of outreach that is uh, made possible through uh, media like the MTA is seen precisely as a proof of the the certainty or the uh, the, the truthfulness of the Ahmadiyya uh, 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 sort of message and so on. Uh, and you especially focus on the uh, on the role that the MTA ends up playing for the Ahmadis of Qadian specifically in terms of their own representational piety and so on. Um, so, uh, so, so, so tell us a bit about the MTA and the Ahmadis in Qadian, uh, and, and then of course your larger argument to do with this whole uh, counterfeit uh, proof of Muslimness. Yeah, so this is this is the satellite television channel um, of the of the Jamaat, uh, which began as a kind of you know single channel. I think it was just broadcast a few hours a day, um, and is now they they broadcast actually they've got multiple channels. It's a network in different different languages. They broadcast in English and Arabic and Urdu, um, and it is I think it's broadcast in most parts of the world on various different satellites, um, and it is seen by many Ahmadis as you know having radically changed uh, the nature of the relationship that they can have with their Khalifa. Uh, this is how they see the Khalifa, this is how they listen to his sermons, um, this is how they kind of, you know, form a con- an emotional connection with him, an emotional connection of obedience and discipline. Um, I mean, before, you know, before this, uh, before this, this network existed, I heard stories of people going to extreme lengths to listen to his sermons live. Uh, you know, there's stories in Qadian of people basically uh, using long distance telephone calls to dial into the sermon so that it could then be recorded on cassettes and passed around Qadian and listened to it. This is, you know, because there was no way of hearing the sermon otherwise. So it, it's, it's seen as this kind of great, both a great, a great religious boon, a great spiritual boon that allows people to, to, put themselves in the religious organization, which gives them the ability to kind of be good Muslims. Um, but it's also in itself seen as an effective proof. You know, this is, uh, th- this is a movement in which success correlates with divine favor, right? The more successful you are, the more divine favor you have, the more encompassing of the world you are, the more your kind of, the, the materiality of your, of your true Islam is evidenced and witnessed. Um, and so it, it becomes very, very important for places like Qadian, you know, particularly given the, the, the history of Qadian as a place which is both symbolically crucial, but also, you know, has been, has, has felt like it's been left behind a bit. Um, and as in many parts of the world, you know, there's a lot of kind of community production of, um, of programs for MTA. There's an MTA studio in Qadian. Um, they've got great, great equipment. They, you know, make their own programs and they also film a large number of the events that are taking place in this city. Um, partly because, you know, um, because of its, its historical and symbolic importance to the movement. And during the filming of these events, all of the, all, all of the, the individuals in Cardian effectively become exemplary, uh, exemplary demonstrations of discipline, of obedience to the to the Khalifa, um, of love to the Khalifa, that are then you know broadcast around the world, so that other people can witness um, the, the the power of the Khalifa and the obedience of the Ahmadiyya community beneath him. Um, and kind of part of what I talk about is you know, I mean, part of this book is about the fact that this is a form of religion in which in which living an ethical life in which in which being a muslim is about being part of a movement it's about 
having these social relations to others, to a hierarchy, to a to a leader, and how you know part of what I talk about is how seeing themselves projected in this way uh, around the world on this television um, on this television station uh, gives them a chance to witness the way in which the movement itself is able to kind of secure the truth of what they're saying. Um, you know, for, for a moment, they see themselves being part of this worldwide global movement, not cut off, but integrated within um, and are able to, whatever their own individual failings, whatever their own feelings about, you know, not being good enough servants of, of the Khalifa, are able to see how they are part of this global movement that actually guarantees the truth of, of what is being said. Wonderful. Um, so as we're coming to the uh, uh, sort of end of our conversation, Nick, I was wondering if you could perhaps take a step back and reflect a bit, you know, how you see, we've talked a lot about this sort of uh, your contribution to the anthropology of religion uh, and trying to sort of puncture this belief without uh, binary. I was wondering how would you sort of see the intervention of this uh, text in, uh, you know, fields like South Asian studies, study of Islam, and so on, um, uh, uh, w what would be the sort of uh, 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 intervention that you w would want readers to remember after completing this book? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think, I, I mean, I think, uh, so when I began this project 10 years ago, um, there, there really wasn't any good uh, ethnographic work about about the Ahmadiyya Jamaat, um, and there was a you know fantastic book about their theology, but there wasn't much um, much else written. And then in the last few years, a, a number of other scholars have started to produce you know detailed, solid, good ethnographic work about the community, which is, is is wonderful. That you know when my book comes out, there's all this other stuff which is coming out, and it's suddenly an exciting kind of uh, field of debate with 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 good work coming through. Um, I, I would say that kind of the, the 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 thing that my book does that is that that, that is kind of, I guess, um, slightly different is that I I really try and move beyond a kind of consideration of well what are the beliefs what are the intellectual ideas behind the Ahmadiyya Jamaat to begin to think about the ways in which um, you know this to begin to think of it as a a uh, particular ethical way of being Muslim in the modern world and to think about the way ways in which that way of being Muslim is. You know, not just a theological thing, but also a an institutional thing, uh, a matter of the social relations that people have. So I guess it's kind of you know um, for for people more broadly interested in in the Ahmadiyya Jabhat, um would be a way would be yeah about sort of uh, beginning to think about this movement beyond just the, the theology, beyond just the kind of like surface beliefs, and beginning to think about it as a uh, a way of being in the world that is possible only because of uh, the very unique social structure that exists. And uh, Nick, what, um, what are you planning as perhaps the next project once you're done sort of, uh, you know, taking a breath and celebrating this wonderful achievement? What uh, could uh, listeners and readers expect uh, as their next uh, project? Um, yeah, I mean, it feels odd, as, as I'm sure you and, and all your listeners who have themselves published books know, you know, you, you, you finish a book and it's not on the shelves for another two years or so, you know. Um, so I've, I kind of feel I've, I've moved away from this project for a long time now. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm currently writing a new book about uh, political exile in London, actually. I've been, I've been doing uh, fieldwork much closer to home, um, but still inspired by my work 
with the Ahmadis insofar as you know one of the most uh, one of the most prominent influential uh, political exiles in London uh, is the, the the Caliph of the Ahmadiyya community. Um, and my new book, I think, will begin with perhaps a short reflection on his role and his influence on the world. Far from the Caliph's gaze being Ahmadi Muslim in the Holy City of Qadian by Professor Nick Evans, uh, published by Cornell University Press in 2020. <coughs> Thank you so much, Nick, for your time and for coming on the New Books Network. I really appreciate the conversation, as I'm sure our listeners must have also appreciated this and learned so much from it. I really look forward to the conversations and debates that this book will generate. Thank you so much for coming on the New Books Network. Thank you for inviting me. So this was my conversation with Professor Nicholas Evans about his terrific new book, Far From the Caliph's Case. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. Please also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Bye-bye now.